Let me open again our time in a word of prayer. Father, we come into your presence once again. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be fully focused on what we will hear from your word. Or just like Peter and Isaiah before him, as sinful people, we tremble as we come into your presence. Uh, we are sinful, but you are a holy God. And we're so thankful that you've been so gracious and so merciful to us, and that you allow us in your presence uh, through what your son did for us on the cross of Calvary. And so as we think of this lofty subject, Lord, we pray that our hearts would lift up in praise and worship and adoration because you're truly worthy of all of those things. Help us now. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen. If you have your booklets, uh, turn with me to page number 11. This is our fourth session in this series, which we have titled this, We Believe. And tonight, we come to the doctrine of God the Father, or theology proper. Let me read with us. Um, first couple of paragraphs from that page. It says, we believe and teach that there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing, self-existent spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, we believe and teach that God the Father the first person of the Trinity orders and executes all things according to his own purpose and grace. He initiated the creation of all things in six literal days, including the special creation of man and woman. As the only absolute and omnipotent ruler in the universe, he is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. He has decreed for his own glory all things that come to pass, he continually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and events. In his sovereignty, he is neither the author nor approver of sin, nor does he diminish or destroy the accountability of moral, intelligent creatures. We'll stop there. In an online article put out by the Pew Research in 2012, so this is some time back, the article was titled, Nuns N-O-N-E-S, nuns on the rise. It said this, the number of Americans who do not identify with any religion continues to grow at a rapid pace. One-fifth of the U.S. public and a third of adults under 30 are religiously unaffiliated today, the highest percentages ever in the Pew Research Center polling. In the last five years, that is 2007 to 2012, in the last five years alone, the unaffiliated have increased from just over 15% to just under 20% for all U.S. adults. Their ranks now include more than 13 million self-described atheists and agnostics, as well as nearly 33 million people, which is almost 10%, uh, it says 14% of the entire U.S. population, who say they have no particular religious affiliation. The same research center did another report in 2021, so two years back, now reports that the figure is about 29%, 29 
So from 15% in 2012 to 29% in nine years. You know, while atheists and agnostics have long existed, but in the last two decades or so, what has changed is that instead of adopting a low profile, they have now become increasingly vocal and they wear that badge of being an atheist or an agnostic with pride. But in the midst of all the changes in the culture, in the midst of the ups and downs of the culture that we live in, there's one thing that does not change, and it's the unchanging word of God. It continues to speak with authority and with objectivity. In fact, twice in the Psalm, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, uh, written by King David, he declares, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is, no, there is no one who does good. Now, fool, as described here, is not someone who is not intelligent. Uh, this is a person who has no perception of spiritual truth and spiritual realities. That is what a fool is. Uh, the meaning of the text is not that unintelligent people do not believe in God. Rather, the text means that sinful people do not believe in God. It is an unrighteous and a wicked thing to deny that God exists. Such a denial is then, as you go on to read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, such a denial is accompanied by a wicked lifestyle. The question then is, can God be known? Is there a God? And if so, how is he like? And if he exists, what is the best response to such a God? So today we come to the study of God. In technical words, theology proper. I've titled our lesson, Who Are You, Lord? Who Are You, Lord? As we consider God, more particularly, the first person of the Trinity. And then, Lord willing, in part two and part three, we will consider our Lord Jesus Christ and then our, the Holy Spirit. So as we begin here, here are five things framed as questions that I want to touch upon today. We will ask the questions and we'll attempt to answer those questions. Can we really know God? Is God even there where we will talk about some of the evidences that are there for God's existence? What does the Bible say about God? Now, fourthly, what does the Bible say God is like? Where we will think of God's attributes. And then finally, and I think this is most importantly, how should we respond to God? Because we don't want to just have information about God. We don't want to know facts about God. No, we want to know God. So first of all, can we really know God? How can we even begin to explore this subject? You know, while all other subjects that we study will be exhausted, uh, this one we will continue to study throughout eternity. And that brings me to the first thing about this section, and that is the incomprehensibility of God. You know, in one sense, we can never really fully know God. Uh, this is generally known as the incomprehensibility of God. It is that quality of God which makes him incapable of being fully understood or defined to any other being other than God himself. How can a finite human being, like you and me after all, Imagine knowing and understanding an infinite being. Reminds me of Job chapter 11, verse 7 to 9, 
where it says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. You know, in the last two weeks, we saw that on our own, we can never come to know the God of the Bible. That is, unless he reveals himself to us. Uh, Through creation, that is through general revelation, and in the Bible, God reveals himself to us. But he does not reveal himself to us exhaustively. Uh, He does not reveal everything there is to know about him. You see, if we can know everything about God, if, if we can know everything there is to know about God, that would put us in his position and as created beings that can never be. He's so vast and so beyond our human categories that even to understand him, we have to use human categories and stretch those categories to its limits. And even after we do that, we express who God is in negative terms because we simply do not have the words to express who God is. But let me give you an example. We recognize that as human beings, physically speaking, we have limits. And so when we talk about ourselves, we say we are limited. But when we talk about God, we say he is unlimited. We have to appeal to what you and I understand about the word limit and then say that God is totally opposite of that. While you and I can only be present in one place at one point of time, that would be true of us, but that would be untrue of God. He is here, and he is with our friends, and he is with our family members at the same time, and in the same way. We can pray and communicate with him on the beach and in the woods, kneeling next to our beds, sitting in our patios. He is with us when we drove here, and he is here with us as we talk about him. It's difficult to grasp and we will never be able to grasp everything that we can know about him. In a sense, it's never possible to fully know God. But in another sense, it is possible to know God. And that is what we call as the knowability of God. And we can know things about him because he took the initiative to reveal those to us. We can know God, but we cannot know everything about him. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so it's possible to to know God. We will not know him exhaustively, but it is possible to know him truly. Do we need to take a break now? I feel like Noah is translating for me here. There are things about him that we can know that they are true. Uh, There are things about him 
that he has revealed about himself in his word, that he exists and that he is true and loving and holy and compassionate and merciful and gracious. God can be known, not exhaustively, but we can know God truly. You know, you and I come into this world because someone has willed it and caused us to come into this world. Those would be our parents. That would mean that the cause of our existence is outside of ourselves. Not so with God. You see, the cause of his existence is within himself. He is self-existing. He just is. It's like God is in a category and he, he, he alone is in that category. There's no one else in that category. And everything else is in this other category. Because everything else is created. He himself is the uncreated, self-existing being. And so the task really before us, even as we frame these in questions, is, is just enormous. And we have to admit that on, on our own, we can never know God. But we also admit that unless God took the initiative of revealing himself to us, we cannot know truths about this God. And so that brings us to the second question, uh, which we had raised earlier. Is God even there? Is God even there? That brings me to a text, which is such a known text, and it's Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is each one of us is created with an understanding that God exists, but we suppress that knowledge in, our, in and through un, our unrighteousness. Romans tells us that the fact of God, the fact that God exists is a known fact. The knowledge of God's existence is known, but it is suppressed. Isn't it the psalmist who says the heavens are telling the glory of the God and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. What an amazing God this is. And I want to look with you at a few arguments or evidences for God's existence without being too technical about it. But I think it's helpful to know what these arguments are so that we can be assured in our own hearts that we don't have to keep our minds aside when we come to this God, the God of the Bible. There are many, but I've restricted our, 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 for, for our lesson for tonight to three of them. The first one is called the teleological argument for God's existence. Uh, teleological comes from the word telos, and telos means aim or goal or design. Basically, you're saying that everything that exists on this earth seems to have a purpose, a design. And so the first premise is if there is a design, then there is a designer. There is a design that we see in this earth and everything that is created, and therefore there is a designer, namely God himself. And our body parts seem to have a purpose. Nature as it exists seems to have a purpose. The environment seems to have a purpose. And the universe seems to have a purpose as well, governed by precise laws. If there is a purpose or a design, that there must be a designer. And what we are saying is that that designer is God. 
But there's another argument. This is the moral argument for God's existence. And what this one is saying is that if there is objective moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. If objective moral values exist, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist and therefore God exists is the conclusion. When we say objective, what we mean is those things that are right or wrong regardless of wherever you are in the world. Uh, subjective means those values are relative. Everything is permitted in that sense. Let me give you an example. Uh, rape, for example, is wrong regardless of the culture we live in. Lying would be another one. I can't imagine a culture where um, cowardness is appreciated. No, they are all things that are considered universally wrong. If God does not exist, then everything, everything is permissible. And so because objective moral values do exist, they are grounded in someone who gives those values, and the giver of those values is God. Then there is a third one, which is popularly known as the cosmological argument. What basically this is saying is that everything that has begun to exist has a cause behind its existence. You're sitting on nice chairs around table. They were around tables. They were arranged in those ways by certain people. There's a cause behind how things are arranged in this room. What we're saying is we are pulling ourselves back and taking the whole universe into consideration and saying everything that began to exist has a cause. The universe did begin to exist and therefore the universe has a cause. And the cause is God himself. We call this cause God. Notice everything that begins to exist has a cause. Therefore, something that never began to exist doesn't need a cause for its existence. God never began to exist and therefore does not need to have a cause behind his existence because he never began to exist. He always is. He was there when your grandparents existed, your great-grandparents existed, all the way back to Adam and Eve. He always is. You know, all of the arguments or philosophical proofs for the existence of God, helpful though they are, they are limited in some ways. They do help you to establish the existence of a God, but not necessarily the God of the Bible. You see, all of these proofs are used also by people such as those who are believing in monotheism, such as the Muslims, for example. They use these arguments also to defend their concept of God. And so we come to the biblical understanding of God. If God is the cause of the existence of the universe, and biblically speaking, he is, then how must he be like? Who is he? What does the Bible say about God? Here I want to draw a few conclusions of what the scriptures talk about when it talks about God. And then we will come to the attributes of God. It might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but know that we, there is an intention behind it. Uh, perhaps one of the things that we do want to accomplish, not perhaps, but one of the things that we do want to accomplish is we can't cover everything we would like to cover in one session. So hopefully there are things that are said here that you can take and then you can do your own study as you grow in the Lord. But what does the Bible say about God? First of all, it says that God is a being. When we say God is a being, we are saying he exists. 
It means existence. It means that he is there. Webster's Dictionary defines being as that which exists in any form, whether it be material or spiritual, actual or ideal, living existence as distinguished from that which does not have life. We go to the first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If he created the heavens and the earth, by necessity, he is one who exists. You know, the word God appears in the Bible more than 4,500 times. Now, I've not counted that myself, but people who do the research tell me that it's 4,500 times at least that that word comes up in the Bible. God as a being is completely and utterly unique. There is no one like him. Like I mentioned before, we are talking about someone who is in a category of his own. He's not a product of anyone's imagination. He's not an illusion. He is a being and he exists. But secondly, the Bible also tells us that he is one who is alive. Repeatedly in the scriptures, God is called the living God. In Joshua chapter 3 verse 10, Joshua says, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. How so? He will assuredly dispossess from you before you, from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, and the Amorite, and the Jebusite. He will show that he is living by doing all of these things. Remember in our Lord's response to the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22, when they were arguing about resurrection, he says to them, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is a living God. To have life implies many, many things. It implies that there is feeling, there is power, there is activity. And God participates or has all of those three things as we think of it. Compared to the idols that are dead, he is a living God. I think the psalmist in Psalm 115 captures it very well. In verse 3 of Psalm 115 it says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols, he says, are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. This is he talking about the idols. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. You see, this God is a living God. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. If you are a follower of Christ, God's word assures us that the God that we believe in is a living and a true God. He is a being. He is alive. Thirdly, he is eternal. You can think of this even as an attribute, but this is also an essence of God. You know, while you and I have a beginning, God does not have a beginning. Before beginning began, and that is before time began, God existed. After time will come to an end, he will continue to exist. Isn't it in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in the Bible, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He has always existed. The very name of God 
has implicit within it the notion of eternality. How so? We're in Exodus chapter 3. Why don't we turn there? Exodus chapter 3. Let's look at a couple of verses. This, remember, is the burning bush event in, recorded for us as God interacts with Moses. Therefore, it says in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now what does it signify? Amongst many things, it signifies this. This God has always existed. He is existing and he will continue to exist. No wonder Moses Uh, The same individual that God interacted with here writes in Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I hope you're beginning to see the majesty and the awesomeness of the God of the Bible. He is an eternal God. Thirdly, he is spirit. Remember that conversation with the Samaritan woman that our Lord had where he says to her in John 4.24, God is spirit. And in the Greek, there is no article there. Therefore, the statement defines God's nature as one that is spiritual. By nature, God is a spirit being. He's not a material being, but an immaterial being. And however you define the word spirit, What that definition does not include is flesh and bones. Uh, This is seen in a discussion that our Lord has with his disciples after his resurrection. Remember, he goes, he is with these uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he disappears, and then these disciples go back to Jerusalem. The Lord appears there, and then he shows his hands and his feet, and he says to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, And then he says this, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. God is spirit. Jesus clearly states here that the spirit does not have flesh and bones. God, therefore, being a spirit, does not have flesh and bones, in other words. And one of the implications of that fact is that God is spirit, that he is immaterial. We are material beings created in the image of God. God is Spirit. Fourth, fifthly, God is a person. The very idea of spirit implies personality. When we say God is a person, we are saying that he has qualities. He has the nature of a person. And what is the nature of a person? Well, a person is one who is self-conscious and self-determined. When we say a human person is self-conscious, we are saying that that human is able to relate his feelings, his appetites and thoughts about himself. Also, when we say something is self-determined, we mean that the individual is free to make choices from within in view of his motives and his ends. And God is both a self-conscious being and a self-determined being. Also, when we think of God as a person, we are thinking of someone who has a volition, that is a will and an intellect. As a person, he also displays personhood 
in how he communicates. He is one who speaks, he hears, he sees, he creates. He is the upholder, the ruler and sustainer of all things. God is a person. But not only that, sixthly, God is one. God is one. Remember the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 begins this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, Paul in writing to Timothy, he says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God. But only there is one God, as we know from the rest of the scriptures, he is also triune. There is a trinity. And this is one of the most distinguishing essences of the biblical God. Uh, the claim here is not that God is uh, three persons and three beings. The claim is God is three persons and one being. And there's not a book or a chapter or a passage that goes into detail about this particular doctrine, you'll not be able to find a discourse or a lesson or a sermon in the Bible where a detailed account of this particular doctrine is given. But if you read the Bible, you will come across instances, events, that cannot make sense without admitting that the Bible is teaching Trinity. You just cannot. Let me give you a few examples. Why don't we turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We see this, first of all, in the baptism of our Lord. Notice Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is baptized by his relative, John the Baptist. And after being baptized, verse 16 tells us, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw, notice, the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father addressing God the Son in the presence of God the Spirit. Go down to the last chapter in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28. This is also known as the Great Commission. In verse 19 of that chapter, it says, uh, this is our Lord commissioning his disciples. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, notice, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll go to Second uh, Corinthians. This is the last chapter in the letter according to Paul. Second Corinthians chapter 13 And notice how Paul closes this letter, giving equal weightage to each person of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you're interested in further text, note, note, you can note down Acts chapter 5, where the apostles equate God with the Holy Spirit. 
in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Clearly, we see the Bible that it portrays that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, and yet there is one being. And this then is the essence of God. He is a being, he is alive, he is eternal, he is a spirit, he is a person, he is one, he is triune. One of the things that, as you look at this list, is what distinguishes him from other so-called monotheistic religions, and that is the fact that he is a person. Uh, There is a personality there. Uh, the, The reason we can be personal as well is because the one who created us is a person. That brings me to the fourth question that I want to address. What does the Bible say God is like? Seems very similar to the earlier one, but this one focuses on the attributes of God. What are some things about God that he has revealed? What I'm going to share with you is not an exhaustive list. These are not all the attributes that, uh, the, of God. Rather, these are a sampling of attributes of God, and that too from the ones that he has revealed. As I mentioned, he's not revealed everything about himself. Even eternity is not going to be enough as we explore who God is. God is a subject that we will continue to explore even when we are in his presence. Still, God possesses attributes that we can know, and he has given us these attributes in his word to understand who he is. Uh, As we think of these attributes, theologians categorize them into two categories. One is those attributes that he shares with you and me. Not exhaustively, but to a limited extent. So we know that God is wise or God is holy. Those attributes are extended to us, uh, not in its entirety, but in a limited sense. And then there are other attributes that he does not share, that are unique to him. Those are called as the non-shared attributes. Let's begin there with the non-shared attributes. First of all, it's immutability. Uh, What it is, is it's something to be immutable, which is something that does not change. He is unchanging. You know, as we grow older, we change. Dark hair becomes white. A skin that is good becomes uh, wrinkled and, uh, and we grow older. But that is not how God is. We change mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and we change physically. But God never changes. He never changes his nature. Excuse me. Nor does he ever change his purpose. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 it says, For I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He never changes. His plans never change. He never gets better or worse. His promises do not change. You know, as you think of God's immutability, it ought to be a source of firm and incredible joy for, for you and me. That's not how the Greek gods or the Hindu gods are who changed according to how their day was. No, this God doesn't change. Our God does not change implies that he is one who is dependable. His purposes are unfailing and his promises unassailable. Uh, Perhaps to a limited extent we find this in men and women that we trust, men and women who are of, of integrity and we think of them We think that we can trust them. They are dependable because we can almost predict how they will behave. 
Here is a man, here is a woman who is always honest. We can depend on them. If that is true of human beings, how much more true it is of God. He does not change. These ones should be, the rest of the ones that follow should be very familiar to us. He is an omnipotent God. His omnipotence is a non-shared attribute. Omni stands for all and potent stands for power. He's all powerful. Uh, To be omnipotent is to have unlimited power. God is able and powerful to do anything that he wills. Is there anything impossible with God? Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Now that is some power. To create something out of nothing. To be omnipotent is to have unlimited power. God is able and powerful to do anything he wills. But as we think of that concept, one note of caution to avoid a contradiction. He does not do anything that is contrary to his nature. Is there something that is not possible for God to do? Yes, he cannot lie. Because that will be something against his nature. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He is an omnipotent God, but for our understanding, he doesn't do anything against his character or nature. Thirdly, he is an omniscient God. When we say God is omniscient, we mean that he knows all things and he knows everything. Uh, From each other, we are able to hide some things. But we cannot hide anything from God. In Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, it says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God not only knows our present, he knows our past, He knows our future and he knows all permutations and combinations of what would have happened if we had taken a certain course of action. Everything is known to God. Why don't we turn to Psalm 139 where this is captured so well by the psalmist. Psalm 139. David, it is, that captures this for us. Notice verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. What a comfort it should bring to a child of God to know that God knows everything about you and yet he loves you and he's gracious and merciful To you. Notice verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. What a great and awesome God we have. You know, because God is all knowing. We can trust that he knows everything we are going through today and everything that we will go through tomorrow. He is an omniscient God. Fourthly, he is an omnipresent God. 
by omnipresence, we mean that God is present everywhere all the time. He was present with you at your workplace when you were typing along on the computer. He's with you at your home or apartment and he's with you. He was with you on your way here. He is right here. He is an omnipresent God. If you're still in Psalm 139, go to verse 7. So as David writes, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. His immutability, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience are some of his attributes that he does not share. There are others that I've not included in this list. Uh, for example, his independence. Uh, he is truly only the one who is alone who can say that he is independent. Uh, his unity, all of his characters and attributes are one that exist in, 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 at the same time. Uh, there is not a time that uh, he uses one and, and, and does not consider the other. No, that never happens. Uh, this, another word that theologians use for that is his simplicity, his unity. And then there is his sovereignty. There is his self-existence. There is his transcendence. And then eternality, one that we already considered as well. That brings us to the attributes that he does share with us. When we say share, we do not mean in its entirety or in its exactness to how God possesses it, but shared to an extent or to a limit. And so these are also called as the moral or communicable attributes of God. What are some of those? Well, first of all, the fact that he is holy. We were singing about it just a few minutes back. He is a holy God. You know, repeatedly in the scriptures, God is described as one who is holy. Uh, two times uh, the phrase holy, holy, holy is repeated. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, uh, there's a scene that is described for us in heaven where they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The word merely means one that is set apart, one that is revered or sacred. And yet none of those words is adequate or capable to describe the holiness of God. And therefore I draw from John MacArthur and how he describes God's holiness. He says, of all the attributes of God, holiness is one that, is most, that, that most uniquely describes him and in reality is a summation of all his other attributes. And the word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he's unlike any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together, he says. Properly understood, it will revolutionize the quality of our worship. As we think of God's holiness, and we are tempted of uh, one thing or the other as we are tempted to sin, you think of God's holiness, he says, properly understood, it will revolutionize the quality of our worship. As we dwell on who God is, uh, we will be less and less tempted to satisfy ourselves and more and more encouraged to worship this holy God. God is a holy God. God is absolutely, 
morally separate from sin. He is endlessly and always perfect. He is infinitely, unchangingly perfect. Secondly, God is just. The God of the Bible is righteous and just. His judgments are not arbitrary. They are not disorderly and without standards. Rather, when we come to him, we know that we always will be treated with justness and fairness every time and so will everybody else. You know, as we think of justness, uh, this is an attribute that he does share with us. If you were a teenager at one point of time, uh, like we do now have in our home, one of the common sentences that we've begun to hear is, that is not fair. That is not fair. There is a, 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 a desire within us to see fairness and justness everywhere, especially when it comes to our own situation. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God being just means, uh, it's, it's more than being fair. It means that he always, always does what is right and good toward all. How little and how sinful of us to complain that we have gotten the short, uh, short end of something or, or even to go to him and complain about anything. No, he is a just God. And you know, though this might be hard to accept for some of us, he is just as just with those who end up spending eternity apart from him in hell. He is still just. He's righteous. Uh, thirdly, God is a good God. And God is frequently described as one who is good. Psalm 34 verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? The Lord is good. How blessed is the man, how blessed is the woman that takes refuge in him. A.W. Tozer writes this about the goodness of God. He says, the goodness of God is that which dispossesses him to be kind cordial and benevolent and full of goodwill toward men. He is, out of his goodness, tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. And his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. He is an approachable God. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. We have a good God. When the psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, he's, not in, he's inviting us not merely to believe that God is good, but also to come and experience and participate in that goodness. Isn't it Paul, as he lists a sampling of the uh, fruit of the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, he says, there is no law. Our God is good and he invites us to participate in his goodness. Uh, fourthly, he is a loving God. He's a loving God, you know, which is one of the most, love as a word is one of the most used and abused words in English vocabulary. And so we come with a mindset that is influenced by the culture that is around us when we think of love and, and God. Uh, we have this broken and fallen concept of what love is. It is understood in terms of 
I do this, you do this for me and I do this for you. But in biblical terms, though, love of God is eternal, sovereign, unchanging and infinite. And it is expressed in relationships. So for example, in 1 John chapter 4, it says, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is frequently expressed in actions. It's no use telling someone you love them and no actions follow from that. You see, love is an act of the will and then expressed in actions. It's an act of the will which is then expressed in actions. That's why Paul in his letter to the Corinthians could say, love is patient, love is kind. It's not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffered. What are all of these? These are uh, act of the will expressed then in verbs, in actions. One of the interesting things to observe about God is whenever love is mentioned in connection with God, it's always followed by an action. I think of John chapter 3 verse 16. Think of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is a loving God and he shares that attribute with us. We are loving to whatever limited extent we are because the God that we believe in is also a loving God. Uh, fifthly and finally, he's a merciful and a gracious God. You see, when we say that God is merciful, we are saying that he is infinitely, unchangeably loving, lovingly kind towards us in that he withholds from us that which we deserve. That's his mercy. We deserve his wrath. We deserve an eternity apart from him. You know, as sinners in rebellion against this holy God, we deserve death. But because of his mercy, we don't get what we deserve. That is his mercy. And in many times, in many ways, we act mercifully towards us, towards others as well. And in certain circumstances, we also expect others to act mercifully towards us. But not only that, he is also a gracious God. And you know, if mercy is not getting what we do deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. His grace is something we do not earn or lose. In Psalm 145 it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. You know, when we talk about grace, theologians will often differentiate between what is called as God's common grace and God's saving grace. His common grace is a gift to all of mankind. Uh, you know, Matthew 5.45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For, he says, he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good send, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's his common grace. You know, while everyone on earth is a beneficiary of that common grace, only those who place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope to be right with this holy God receive what is called as a saving grace. God is a gracious God. Isn't it Paul who writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
how would you like to be remembered at the end of your life? Would you, be, would you want to be remembered as one who pursued God as much as your capacities allowed you to pursue God? Or would you be known as that one who was so self-focused that there was nothing done for the glory of God in his or her life? You see, if you're a child of God, then your goal in life, my goal in life, is to bring glory to this God. Not intrinsic glory, not one that he already possesses, but one that is expressed towards him in living a life that is truly honoring to him. Now, this is a British pastor who served in New Zealand for a number of years by the name F.W. Borham. He wrote this at the end of his ministry when he was about 86 years old. He was asked what would he change if he had a chance to do his ministry all over again. This is what he wrote. If I could have my ministry again, I would talk more about God. Not about God's works or God's ways, God's power or God's bounty, but about God's very self. God's omnipresence, God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's unutterable goodness, God's ineffable holiness, God's splendor, God's glory, God's love. For if I could make people very sure of God, they would soon hurry to that divine Savior who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. What would you like to be known as as you continue to grow into adulthood? I'm sure along with F.W. Borum, we want others to know more about this great God. And so how can we respond to this great God? And what would be a good response? Well, not in our texts that we have looked at today, but we know that this God is a holy God and we are sinful people. And the only way that we can have access to this holy God is through the blood of his son. So first of all, confess your sins to him. If you're sitting here and you are thinking to yourself, I'm not interested in this God. I don't believe in this God. Can I tell you that you're here because God wanted you to be here to hear this? That if you confess your sins, that if you repent and believe in him, the Bible tells us that he will save you. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A similar kind of sentiment is expressed in Psalm 2 where the psalmist writes, Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you are a child of God, you have already sought refuge in him. Confess your sins to him. But secondly, he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Worship him. I almost call my time in God's word, both in reading it and communicating with him in prayer as a worship time. We come together on the Lord's Day as a community, as a body of believers to worship him corporately. But every day, every moment of our lives, we have to worship him through everything that we do. The psalmist in Psalm 100 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us 
and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. That is the God that we believe in. And thirdly and finally, one who is not only we can come to him and confess our sins, one who is not only worthy of all the worship that we can offer and acknowledge him for who he is, but thirdly and finally, we are to obey him. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How should we respond to God? Well, confess your sins to him. Worship him and obey him. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for, the, for your word. Thank you for being gracious and merciful towards us. Uh, that you have revealed yourself to us. If you had not done that, we would not have ever come to know you as we do now. I thank you for sending your son for us uh, these last days that you've spoken to us through him. Uh, thankful for the fact that he is coming back again and that we will get to worship you for eternity. Lord, you're truly worthy of our, our praise and worship. And we give you thanks for what we have learned today from your word. I do pray for the small group's time, Lord. We pray that you would be honored through it as well. We commit the rest of the evening into your hands. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.